I'll be reading from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18. A final word. Be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will, stand, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on, the salvation, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Stu. Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful day. Beautiful day in the neighborhood, as they say. And uh, summertime, people are coming and going. Might be just a bit echoey here, Quinn. If you're visiting today, um, we're on the home stretch of an awesome letter. Letter to the Ephesians, uh, one of the uh, four prison epistles uh, penned by the Apostle Paul and written from a prison in Rome addressed to a city called Ephesus. Uh, so the study has taken us deeper into the heart of God, uh, the first three chapters becoming uh, strikingly doctrinal in, in nature, and then the last three ch chapters are uh, filed under extremely practical, very practical for us moment by moment, day by day. Uh, but this morning, we're going to begin a three-week mini-series on the spiritual mafia. Now, I can explain that in a moment. Uh, you could call it spiritual warfare, but in our reading in Ephesians, we suddenly come into a flow of verses that cause us to take a more sobering look uh, at the reality of our Christian life. And the section to me feels like a bit of a jolt, you know, like a speed bump that you suddenly hit. And after some lofty topics on grace and sovereignty and election and, and then the beautiful order of, of the household that we've just come through on, on marriage and family and employers and employees. And, and then smack, we're, we're into the blood and gore of just before he signs off. It's like, I got to tell you this before I close. So we're, we're into a, a warning about the real world of doing battle with an enemy called the devil. Now this is the, uh, I think, the, uh, the consequence of expository preaching. When you go verse by verse by verse, you can't kind of duck around some of these verses. We're into a topic this morning that, that we might be tempted to say, oh, I'll leave that alone. But this is an important topic for us. And if we needed some jolt to remind us, uh, we are camped out in enemy territory well, for the duration of our lives until Jesus comes. So you can say it softly or you can just say it clearly. We're not living in a playground. 
we're living on a battleground. We're living on a battleground. I mean, I think we would all choose to plan our lives around a playground. I would. Just nice, a nice big resort for the time that God gives me on this planet. And it would be nice to be in a beautiful resort. Uh, but the truth is that uh, while you don't hear the bombs bursting and you don't hear the rat-a-tat-tat of the machine gun, in fact, there is more activity on the spiritual battlefield, I think, than any of us could possibly ever imagine. Every piece of the enemy military arsenal is tuned up and ready to go. And there is more activity happening than, of course, what meets the eye, because we don't see it. So let me just begin to move us into this passage by a few reminders. First of all, finding balance. Uh, we can move too far to the right on this one, or we can move too far to the left in our understanding of the activity of the enemy. It's possible that in one extreme that we can either believe in the presence of the devil and in his cohorts as <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, they don't mean anything. I mean, why don't you just say it as it is? It just means wickedness. It just means evil. It's just a figure of speech that we use to mean something else. So it's just a little symbolism here. We could say wickedness, but we fasten it to another realm of spiritual opposition. Just call it a spiritual concept. So you could think that way. And the other extreme is that we really do believe in the presence of darkness and the enemy and the fallen angels and demons. And we believe that there's a demon lurking around every lectern and around all of us here. And they're all over. And the devil made me do it. And, you know, and, and where is he now? So what is the balance? Well, with either of those two extremes, Satan probably is smiling because if he can cause you to think that he's just a figment of your imagination, then he has opened up uh, for uh, a, a lot of freedom for himself because we just don't take him too seriously. Uh, wouldn't he love it if we, if we would just picture him as, you know, that little red imp? Uh, and he's sitting on her shoulders and he's just nattering at us and he's saying some things and... And we just kind of bat him off once in a while. Or wouldn't, wouldn't he just love it if we could, he could get us to imagine that he's this guy in superhero costume with a dull pitchfork in his hand and uh, a few good laughs and we're on to something else like a pesky little mosquito. Just get out of here. You're just a nuisance. A lot of freedom for Satan to work when we believe this. We just have to believe he's some kind of joke. In fact, maybe he's a bit of an entertainer. So we have games about the demons. Games like the Ouija board or other dark games. And Oh, it's, it's kind of cute. The other extreme is that we think of him all the time, that he has us corralled into fear, and that, that, that there's a feeling like we have to cast him out publicly out of every time we meet for worship so we can worship the Lord in freedom. We attribute everything as negative as an attack from the evil one. If we run out of gas in our car, we chalk it up to the demon that causes people to run out of gas rather than saying you should have just filled your car with gas when you were at the service station. If we're impatient, then we're dealing with the demon of impatience. Or if we're going bald, well, I won't go there. Well, you understand what I mean. There, those are extremes. 
And the devil smiles like I got them smothered in crazy thinking. Well, what's the truth? Well, the truth is, without giving him too much credit, that he's good at what he does. He's really good at what he does. He's a professional. And he knows your name. And he knows your strengths. And he knows your weaknesses. And he knows where you're vulnerable. You're in his sights. You're in his crosshairs. And he's constantly at work to undo you, to cripple you, and in fact, if he can, to destroy you. He is the destroyer. John chapter 10, remember the words of Jesus? The thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying and abundant life, John 10, 10. So don't underestimate the enemy. You might be tempted to think, like, at the worst, demons are a bunch of buzzing hornets that are really mad at you. They're just buzzing around you. No. No, they're masters at psychology. They know us better than we know them. I mean, why reveal your true identity if you can deceive? That's the mind of a crafty enemy. Why come masquerading in darkness and be scary when you can come as an angel of light? Why tip your hand uh, of deception when you could appear like a refined business person, a gentleman, businesswoman, dressed professionally? I mean, why force someone to, to uh, believe something that is preposterous, unbelievable, when you could simply sprinkle a little error in the midst of truth and you have to say, is it or is it not? The balance is that we are dealing with the best of the, I was going to say best, but the best of the worst. The best of the worst. It's quite an exercise to do a detailed study of all the passages in the Bible that teach about the enemy and his cohorts. I think our, our eyes would be opened if we undertook such a study. Sid is here this morning. Sid Page wrote a great book quite a few years ago called The Powers of Evil. You should read his book. I get 10% of all the books that are sold here today. But thank you, Sid, for writing that book. So first, finding balance in understanding satanic influence. Secondly, our strength, our strength. Here we are in verse 10. Paul writes a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, there's a command here. It's an imperative to be strong and to stand firm. Verse 10 says to be strong. Verse 11 says to stand. Verse 13 talks about having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. I mean, we get the point. Steady, stand your ground, stay on your feet, uh, don't let yourself get confused, don't be distracted, stand firm. The enemy is going to try to knock you off your game. You see all that emphasis on being firm and, and being strong? That's the first thing that Paul wants to tell us. You have a real enemy out there. And so you need to pay attention to the fact that you are on the battleground 
and your job is to come out the winner at the end by standing firm. I was reading about a family here just this past week or two uh, uh, who commented that when we lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, that they said we, we as a family would go to the beach. And it was always hard to relax and have a good time with our children uh, because there were so many threats in the water, jellyfish and stingrays and sharks and uh, undertow. And uh, so they said one, one time we had some relatives come to St. Petersburg and they brought their boat with them. So we decided to go to an island a couple of miles offshore called Eggmount Key. And we had a great time there because we didn't have to worry about the normal threats. The water was blue, the sand was white, we swam with the children carefree in the Gulf of Mexico. But a few days later they said we were talking with some friends about our wonderful day and them being more familiar with the area they informed us that we had been swimming in one of the most shark infested areas around. We were just unaware. We were completely oblivious to it. And it kind of feels to me like Paul is just blowing the bugle as he closes the letter. Sharks, sharks all over the place. I think he's sounding the bugle just in case the Ephesian believers and us have grown a little passive. He wants to say, you can't afford to swim here without great caution. You can't afford to take your eye off the road. You're driving through a battleground. Be strong, heads up, stand firm. The truth is that our power uh, in our power, we are no match for Satan or any of his wicked minions. That's why Paul says, be strong in the Lord. And in a minute, he's going to show us how to be strong, how to be strong. We're going to need the Lord to help us through all of this. Remember Martin Luther's great hymn? Do we still know it? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Uh, Luther recognized that we need the Lord's strength. And then the next verse says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Saabeth, his name. It means Lord of hosts is his name. From age to age the same. And it says, and he must win the battle. And he must win the battle. Now remember, God and Satan are not equal. Don't ever think that they're equal. Far from it. Uh, our Father God is much more powerful. Satan is an angelic creature of God. Our Father threw him out of heaven because of his pride and sin. It says in Ezekiel 28 that from the day of your creation you were sheer perfection. And then imperfection, evil, was detected in you. In much buying and selling, you turned violent, you sinned. I threw you, disgraced off the mountain of God, I threw you out, you, the anointed angel cherub, 
no more strolling among the gems of fire for you. Your beauty went to your head. You corrupted wisdom by using it to get worldly fame. I threw you to the ground, sent you sprawling before an audience of kings, and then let them gloat over your demise. You can look at that at Ezekiel 28, 16, and 17. And then there's a couple of verses in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So, so those are the two main Old Testament passages that speak of the fall of Lucifer from heaven. We don't have a lot. We have those two verses, those two passages. So Satan, or Lucifer, is not the counterpart of God, but of the archangel Michael, probably. Jude 1.9, But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. Jude 1.9. Revelation 12:7 gives us some historical context. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Revelation 12:7 to 9. Now we recognize that the enemy has power. We should not underestimate him. At the same time, we need to understand that he is not anywhere close to God's power. So Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. There's a historical document of a war uh, situation in the Civil War where uh, a strategy of the war was, was put into about two or three copies. One of the copies got lost and got into the hands of the, of the enemy. And uh, so w when the forces came in to attack in a particular city, they knew exactly the strategy because they had the document and they had been reading ahead and they understood how the enemy was going to attack. We know enough of the Lord's, of the enemy's plan to see what he's up to and to counteract, but only in the Lord's strength. We alone are not equipped to stand against an invisible foe. You cannot see him. You can't see the attacks coming. So Paul says, your strength is in the Lord. Now, as a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. He is your helper. He is your comforter. And you can start each day with the words, uh, Lord, this is your day. And I need you to walk with me today. I can't walk it in my own strength. Would you come and would you be my strength today? So first to know the right balance in understanding the influence of the enemy. Second, to be strong in the Lord. Thirdly, to put on your protection. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies 
of the devil, uh, Ephesians 6.11. Now we'll leave all the components, uh, or some of the components of the army for next week for Pastor Adam, uh, and he's going to start to lay them out. But it's really quite explicit in how we are to protect ourselves in order to stand firm. First thing you have to notice is it's God's armor. You can't protect yourself with your own armor, your own wisdom, your own material acquisitions, your best clothes, your best look. It's, it's not physical. It's spiritual. It's God's armor. He doesn't expect you to produce your own armor. You don't have to be strong enough physically or emotionally or uh, mentally to kind of withstand the pressure because you can't. You need the spiritual armor. And we're so grateful to Paul that he's told us about the armor. We know the word, uh, the name Daniel Woodall, an Edmonton police officer. We have a school named after him just a few blocks away from us. Three years ago, he and another officer was shot trying to deliver uh, a warrant to this person's home. And the bullets hit the other officer's vest, but somehow they missed Daniel's vest, and they hit him in a vulnerable spot where the, he wasn't protected by the vest, and he died. Such a sad day in our city when one of our finest fell. But that vest, you'll watch police officers, and you can tell they've got a vest on. And, and they're protecting themselves. They need to. We are to put on the armor. We, we have to do that, and we'll see how we go about doing that. The reason that we're put, we are to put on the armor is tucked away in verse 11, so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. I like the way John Stott phrases it in his wonderful commentary. A thorough knowledge of the enemy and a healthy respect for his prowess are a necessary preliminary to victory in war. Similarly, if we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we shall see no need for God's armor. We shall go out to the battle unarmed with no weapons but our own puny strength, and we shall be quickly defeated. John Stott. Our preparation is essential in order to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Put on all of God's armor such you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Now, here's a word that you will recognize from the English root word. Now, depending on which, which version you're reading from, you could be reading strategies or schemes or wiles. The word here is actually methodeus. We get our words, our word methods from this particular word. Stand firm against all the methods of the devil. Now that in itself is quite revealing. Paul recognized the enemy as being crafty and foxy and filled with methods to successfully bring us down. It's kind of like, what method will I use on you? He has, he has methods or strategies that are carefully selected to work on the people in his line of fire, which is all of us. He has different strategies because something that doesn't work for you 
might be very difficult for me. And something I say, I feel stronger in this area, might be an area of weakness for you. I mean, he has a strategy for every situation. He will play to your weakness all the time. And in an area, even when you think you are strong, there's that little word called pride, and he'll slip the rug out from under you. In that area, you, you thought, I got this. And you don't. There are many strategies. Here are just a few. Number one, surprise attack. Something you weren't expecting. And then suddenly it's looking you right in the face and you have to respond to it. How do you handle it? Secondly, something very attractive, something with great appeal, something very enticing. Thirdly, tempting thoughts, material things, physical, emotional, attractiveness. Fourthly, making us think he's, he's going to get us one way and, and, and he, that he's moving in this, in this direction and he has us fooled. He's doing something different. Brilliantly deceptive, like a quarterback going back in the pocket. He's looking, he's looking, and he's got everybody thinking he's going to the left. And he's got one person out here on the right, and he throws it to the person. He has it, everybody fooled. Then mixing truth with error is another one. He sprinkles truth, or error among truth. And then failure to forgive. There was a situation in Corinth where a man had uh, caused a, a lot of harm. And Paul said he needed to come back to repentance, and he did come back to repentance. And, uh, but the people were so upset about this guy that they were reluctant to forgive him. And uh, even though his life was turned around, Paul says, okay, you must come to the point where you forgive him again. You can't let him go on like that, and you've got a whole church that's not forgiving him. You must forgive him. Paul says to forgive him so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes, 2 Corinthians 2.11. Satan can do a number on us. When we refuse to forgive someone else, that does something in your heart. That does something in your mind. An opening becomes available for the enemy to input his lies and his ideas that have negative impact upon us. So Paul says we're familiar with his evil schemes. I guess if there's one thing that we could take away uh, from this today is the craftiness of the enemy in terms of his diverse methods to trip us up. He's not a simpleton. He is smart. And he is well-trained, and he has lots of experience. He is not someone who comes across as disgusting. You know, oh, that's disgusting. He, he will eventually come across as disgusting because he is disgusting, but not initially. He will no doubt be the very best at how he comes across, very appealing, because Satan is the highest of God's creation. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time telling us about the history of this enemy of our lives. But what we know is that pride led him to fall, and in his fall he was booted from this beautiful place called heaven. He was dismissed from the very presence of God. And not just Satan or Lucifer, but all of the fallen angels by the millions that 
went over to Lucifer's side, ran to his support. They were deceived by him also. And they are called fallen angels or demons. And they have teamed up with Satan, and their purpose is to thwart the purposes of God at every level. Satan and the rest of the fallen angels work together to bring everything that is good and from God to a place of destruction and demise. So the point is that we're warned to stand firm because of the methodiest of the enemy, the methods, the strategy, the professional trickery of the enemy. How do we handle his methods? Well, here's what Paul is saying. We must put on the armor of God because it will protect us against everything the enemy can throw at us. Put on the armor. Finally, appreciate your enemy. Look at this verse, verse 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. It's always wise to appreciate your enemy in the sense that you know something about them and you respect their ability to harm you. We don't appreciate them, of course, in the sense of liking them, but in a healthy respect. Now we're going to have Paul paint a picture for us of the enemy, and uh, it's not a very pretty picture, but it's very real. There are three things that you should know about your enemy. First, we're not fighting, or actually the word here is wrestling. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood enemies. We are in a wrestling match that we're not used to. Because we don't fight this way typically. We've never fought this way before. Uh, because we are up against spiritual things that we can't see. So we're at a distinct disadvantage. We're used to using our physical might and strength. We're used to using our mind. We're used to using our logical reasoning. <laughs> Friends, that all went out the window. It's not an empirical world. It's a spiritual world. So we now need eyes of faith. We now need eyes of discernment. We need to hear God. We need to be filled with the Spirit. It's a spiritual battle. How do we fight that kind of battle? Secondly, you have to notice that the enemy is organized. How so? Well, look at what Paul writes. But against evil powers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Think of it as the spiritual mafia. I don't know a lot about the mafia, but uh, I know there is a hierarchy in the mafia, and that oftentimes the mafia is not a single group or gang. It's made up of many families that at times have fought against each other. But most of the time, they simply agree to stay out of one another's way. You take that territory, and you take that territory, and we'll just do our wars over there. There is a spiritual mafia. The spiritual mafia is also well organized. Please again be reminded that Satan is not all-knowing. He's not everywhere present. Then how does he accomplish so much? in many different parts of the world? Well, the answer is he's well organized. He not only has his strategies, 
but he has a well-oiled organizational machine working for him, namely the fallen angels. And when you piece together some of the passages, it seems like, like a third of all of the angels in heaven fell with Lucifer and under his control. And John hints at that in Revelation 12.4. So first there are the rulers and the authorities of the unseen world. And I'm not going to say too much because the text is pretty limited, but it seems like there's an order here. There are the top guns. Satan works with them to rule. Not sure what they look like. Some suggest that there are spiritual powers over countries, over provinces, over cities. And I don't say that's wrong. I, I just We don't have the text to support it. But there is some kind of hierarchy for being as effective as they can be with their millions of fallen angels or demons. Second, it says there are powers against mighty powers in this dark world. Some have interpreted this in terms of political structures in our world. But I agree with John Stott that we should keep this spiritual and not political. This is perhaps just another level of satanic uh, activity. The word is uh, rulers in this world, cosmocraterus. It's used in ancient literature to describe world-ruling gods and of spirit beings. So perhaps their assignment is a, is a certain part of the world. Again, we really can't be explicit on it. Thirdly, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And maybe the word we need to underline here is evil or wicked. There are wicked spirits. They're out to do us harm and we can never resist them in our own strength. Only the power of God. Only the armor that he gives us. Wow, kind of a heavy message this morning, I know. Uh, Paul wants us to gather all of this up before he signs off with this letter. Pastor Adam will continue the week, uh, this, the next week, by looking at the parts of the armor. But I just want to say as we close that the message is not one of fear. We're not to be intimidated. Our God gives us peace. Uh, he frees us from the bondage of fear. As Martin Luther said, one little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. We're safe in the power of Jesus. His blood was shed for us. There is nothing that can defeat the power of Jesus the work of Jesus on the cross. We're not at the mercy of the enemy. He knows that he's defeated. He knows that. And he's doing everything he can to take as many with him to the lake of fire as he possibly can. Because that's where he's going to end up. But until then, he's doing an attractive dance. And he dances well. And he's luring people to his side by all of his tactics and his strategies. Therefore, Paul is saying, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Though our Father, we see that that battle in heaven has come to the earth. And all of us as followers of Christ are very much aware of the battle. Lord, give us a clear perspective as we hear this teaching today. And Lord, when uh, you faced the enemy in the wilderness, you said, get out of here, Satan. You must worship the Lord your God, serve him only. 
And Lord, we say that today as well. Lord, you are number one. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, three in one. Holy Spirit, may we hear you today. May we hear what you want to say to us. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you be the center of our lives, that you remove all fear and fill us with your grace and your love and your courage to walk victoriously in this world that you've given to us to serve in. In Jesus' name, amen.